Hey, Marco. Hey, Richard. How's it going? I don't know. I've just realized we don't have a cold open lined up. We don't have a cold open. In fact, there's a lot of cold things we don't have right now. I know I could go for a cold one. Yeah, well, you know, I was thinking maybe we could do something Thanksgiving-themed. Uh, well, you know... Things we're thankful for. Things we're thankful for. Uh... Uh, Things that that make us happy. I'm thankful that this round of films was much better than the last one. That'll do it. I'm very thankful for that. (sighs) Now, what are we immediately thankful for? I mean, like... The simple things in life that, you know, give us, you know... Like fermentation. Sustain. Yeah. And, and yeast. And <sighs> fun kinds of active byproducts. Mm. <sighs> you know what? I, I have a vision. It's, 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 it's in a can. There's beads of perspiration rolling off the side. It's, it starts with a B. It's a B, a B. A beer! Hey! We need a beer. That's what we need. Welcome to Digital Noise. Hello, everybody. Hello. Welcome to the, uh, well, it's probably going to be the, uh, yeah, let's say it's the Thanksgiving show. I know that, like, you know, there may be another one who get crammed out before the actual holiday, but, uh, you know, yeah, let's let's say it is, and we hope that you uh, download this and, and enjoy it on your way to spending time eating turkey with the relatives or... Listen, Listen to, to this it while you're eating yeah. turkey with the relatives yeah, and just nod grandpa at... and your in-laws. Yeah, just like, okay, we're better than them. We are, actually. We're delightful. Again, welcome to Digital Noise. Thank you, as always, for choosing us as your uh, DVD review show of choice. Uh, I'm Richard. I'm Marco. Uh, don't forget, uh, when you're, when you're watching, uh, listening to this, every single film we talk about will be shown down below. That is a link... Uh, each image is a link to the Amazon page for that title. You can go to Amazon. You can buy it directly. If you do, due to the wonders of the free market, I'm never quite sure how this works, but magic, um, it will actually give us a slight kickback. It doesn't cost you anything. Amazon just gives us the money. It helps keep this show going. It keeps going get all the other shows going. It keeps the, uh, the film reviews. Uh, Rage Select, all kinds of wonderful things uh, that we provide for free. And don't forget, if you really want to help the site, you can become a subscriber. There are varying levels that give you access to varying things in the members-only areas of the, of the site. It doesn't cost much. You can get monthly subscriptions. And, you know, it's kind of a bargain. You get to hear more of us for a start. There you go. And, and it keeps the cooler and the beer for a cold. Yeah. <laughs> which keeps the cooler running. Which is, which is probably the most important bit. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, you know what we should start? Where should we start, Richard? One, two, three. The reviews. Uh, yes, course. as always. I... And you know what? We're going to start with a documentary. Oh. About a, a meaningful and significant part of, I think, the cultural history of, of the world, really. Uh, also, one of the, the things that has really, I think, helped reconnect people with the sense of the joy of engineering and architecture and design and building things with your own hands. Yes, it's a Lego brickumentary, <laughs> which yeah. is you know, it it is what it what it says it is. It is a documentary about the history of Lego, yeah. um, and it's you know, I actually really enjoyed it. One, I 
I don't have any Legos, but I grew up with Legos. I love Lego. Who didn't grow up with Lego? What kind of weird person? I almost didn't. Wow. I only got Legos because, you know, my mother would find them at, like, garage. And we never got new Legos. New Legos? I don't even know what the new Lego smell is like. <laughs> we only got used, beat-up Legos. But, damn it, they were so great when they came into the house. And as an adult, I don't really buy toys. But I walk down the aisle of the store, and I always slow down when I see the Legos. And yeah. I just kind of look wistfully at them. And this might be the year I just break down and buy some damn Legos and get over that little hang-up because they're fun. When I, when I was a kid, I had this... It was a hand-me-down from my brother and then through my two sisters and it got to me. And it was this big plastic ice cream tub mm-hmm. filled with Lego bits. Yep. And it was actually the house kit. Uh-huh. Uh, and people say, oh, well, you know, they, they've started making all these specific kits you can't do anything with. They're like, mine was designed to be a house. I would make it into the Millennium Falcon or yes. a Stormtrooper blaster. Like, there's the great thing. And, the, and this show... I recreated the bridge of the of the Death Star in all sorts of colors. Nice. You know, it's just because you, you know, like, I need little consoles for my little Star Wars characters to hang around. So what if the floor is green and the console's yellow and the windows are red? It didn't matter when you were a kid. So, no. yeah, I, I understand the complaint about, oh, now they have all the little parts and it takes away. But, man, I would still love to get my hands on some of those cool pieces. And this, and this is a very, yeah, it's kind of a fluff piece it, for the Lego company. It's like a promotional video, an extended promo. Uh, but I, I'm kind of okay with fun. that. This yeah. would make a wonderful DVD extra on the Lego movie. Yes. I'm surprised it's not. It's a little it's, shocking. It actually uses a lot of the same style of animation. I think they got Jason Bateman to come in and do the narration. Yeah. And he plays this likable every man or every Lego type character. Uh, and it starts off, it's relentlessly cheery. And it gives you a very you know brief thumbnail sketch of the history of the company. Very often uh, animated in Lego form. But in the second half, I think it gets a lot more substantive when you start delving into not only Lego's effect on the culture, but how it's being used in ways that the original builders never envisioned. No. By, by engineers, by, by people providing therapies uh, for people with autism and developmental learning challenges. And then how uh, you've got people like entrepreneurs and scientists, robotics builders, even NASA has gotten in on the Lego thing. Yeah. like, get a room... Play with some Legos. It's, come it's, out with an idea. It's the original modular engineering. Yeah, and it, it and it, and it does, you know it, it, what it's nice is it is it says, yeah, we were there first, and it doesn't go, oh, you know, people have followed in Legos. But it's like, yeah, I mean, this was an idea that was never to be going to have its time, and we kind of did it first. And if that has influenced engineers and architects and people to create things, one of the fun things about this though is the fact that they say, yeah, for a long time, Lego was seen as a a boy's toy yeah. incorrectly um and lego events where you have these you know big lego builders they were totally male dominated for yeah. decades and now it's got better and they, there's this one bit where they go where they talk about a seven one which mm. was code for uh, five by one five by one five uh, by uh, one which is co- code for uh, an attractive woman at a lego convention uh, because there's no such thing as a five by one brick. Correct. Uh, which did actually make me wonder. Uh, my wife w- w- wondered about this. She's like, "Well, if that's true, why do they need to have a code word for it?" it like, <laughs> well, because for the guys who probably brought their wives yeah, along. Like, but, know, but yeah, they yeah they do say yeah. Like that was just a, a problem with the culture right. surrounding you know, the Lego 
you know, you know, big Lego builders. Well, if you see online uh, a few years back, it's been floating on the web. Somebody printed a uh, an old vintage ad from the eighties with this cute little girl with little red hair, red haired girl with pigtails and wearing overalls and holding like some Lego creation. Yeah, and it just says what it is is beautiful. And this, she didn't build like a pony. She didn't build like you know a dream house. You know, it was just this Lego thing that she built. And so there was that push, I think, from some point to like, okay, you know, this is good for all your children, well, not and just the boys. We, and that's the weird thing that like they, they do enter this discussion of like the where the people who were like a serious hobbyist for a long time it did just become a male thing. And it's like, like well, yeah. when I grew up, the great thing about Lego was that it was for absolutely everyone, and yeah. now it's gone back to being that. And like, yeah, I mean, they do have the specialist stuff that is clearly like and, and well, frustratingly so aimed at one of the best Lego builders in the world. As oh, you yeah. see, in oh this. god, she builds. Freaking Rivendell, and she doesn't build like a thing that's a bit Rivendell. She yeah. builds Rivendell, yeah, the whole thing. It's like it's a topographical a... map of Rivendell, except it's you know, so... with... yeah, it's a it's so big. I was like, I was looking at going. It's almost as big as the miniature they there? built for the movie. How did, in how did she uh, lots ship it? of glue and lots of portions. I know, you know, you have but to... like a really big truck as well. This thing's huge. But, but I, you see. One thing I love about documentaries, actually, I like this about cinema, period. They don't do it all the time, but they do it more often in documentaries, is I love to see how things are made. Yeah. I, I love seeing characters do things that I don't know how to do, and they show me a practical way to accomplish something. So you get to see how these Lego engineers go, okay, we've got to build a life-size uh, X-Wing to go into Times Square. Well, how do we do that? What are the logistics of that? You know, How do we build a structure that it goes over... And how do we ship it in all those containers? And how do we get it across Manhattan traffic and keep it a secret? This movie goes into that. But what I think really, really impressed me about this movie, and this is why I say the second half is really stronger, is you bring in executives from Lego. In fact, one of them is, I think, the grandson of the founder. And they openly admit, they're like, there was a period of time where we got arrogant. Yeah. You know, we were almost starting to lose market share. Things were going down. And what they did was they built, again, aimed at boys primarily, they built some little module that would control like basic robotic movements uh, for the Lego sets. And to their horror, they found out that Lego enthusiasts were taking these things, hacking them, reprogramming them. I mean, it's kind of an... It kind of precedes this maker culture we're in now. And Lego had a very tough choice. They're like... Do we sue these people? Do we go after them? Do we crack down and protect our intellectual property? Or should we just stand back a moment and take into account that we built a product that was designed to encourage building? And that is exactly what it's doing. And perhaps what we should do is, rather than, you know... uh, be vindictive towards our fan base, maybe we should embrace them, maybe we should bring them in, allow them to be as outside designers, allow them to pitch designs that could then one day conceivably become Lego sets. You see a NASA engineer who worked on the Mars rover going, I'd like to build a Mars rover set. And they're like, okay, let's talk. How would we do that? So... And they, one, yeah. and they don't even touch on really the educational stuff that they do. Yeah. And they have you know, the Mindstorm thing, which has become a whole wing of the company now. And I've actually yeah. talked to some of the uh, the staff involved in that side of the business. And it's not just the engineering and math side, which was one of the things that clearly they were going to do. Now they're, you know, they've got this whole package where you can teach kids stop motion animation using Lego. Yeah. And it, you know, the camera is there and the editing software and you can build comic, effectively build comics with Lego. And they, you know, they're just basically going, you know, the, the interesting thing they really say is, you know, yes, we do the themed kits, 
but what we're selling you is a tool yeah. for you to go and do the thing you still want to do. This is a lovely little documentary. I, I mean, it's I not, really enjoyed it. It's, it's no, there's no heavy lifting. It's not going to no. change your view of the world, but it's going to make you go, yeah, they're trying to convince me that Lego is cool. Yeah, Lego's cool. Yeah. yeah. It, it's inspirational, heartwarming, and all that. And you're like, every once in a while, it's like, oh, you know, there's some big corporate product aimed at us, and it doesn't suck. It's actually a force for good in the world. And that's great. So, yeah, I definitely recommend this uh, documentary. If you like Legos, if you like documentaries, and if you have kids, like I said, great double feature with the Lego movie, and it's perfectly aimed at all audiences, so they'll appreciate it as well. <laughs> Think, let's move on to something that I, I honestly can't recommend for everybody, uh, and I'm not sure altogether who the hell the audience for this was. Ladies and gentlemen, one of my least favorite films of the year, Vacation. Now, I know you were slightly I, more up on this because this actually slightly. at some points made you laugh. I was very slightly, um, very slightly liking it more. But that's it was a very low bar that it had to clear. And my only bar was, will this make me laugh more than once? It did that. You know, seeing a random stranger at a bus stop fall and land on their ass in the mud, that'll also make me laugh. I, and it's exactly that kind of humor, that cruel, instinctive, I can't believe something that terrible happened. There were, the thing was, there was a couple of moments where I laughed, but there were so many anti-laughs where I actually sure. was sad and frowning because of what they'd just done, that it actually took it down into the negatives for me. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it is, a, it is a hopelessly derivative movie. It knows it. It tries to play at early on this little meta game where like, oh, you know, this vacation will be the best one ever. They're like, well, you know, we're just going to try to remake the vacation of your childhood. That's a horrible idea. No, this vacation will be, it'll stand on its own. I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, yes, I get it. You're not talking about a vacation. You're talking about the series that you're working in. So, yeah, just to clarify for everybody, this is the latest attempt to reboot the uh, National Lampoon's vacation cycle. Um... It's which started slash reboot. Yeah, which started with Chevy Chase, and then as time went on, Chevy Chase was like, uh, screw this, I'm out. <laughs> and they ca- they rumbled on pointlessly, and they replaced the, the daughter, the actress played the daughter well, in they every film. All the kids. That was a running joke. That was never the same Rusty. Yeah. Well, I mean, really, they should get Anthony Michael Hall to play yeah. Rusty. He's still my Rusty. They, they should actually have just swapped, swapped the actor halfway through the film and... Uh, and hope- just had a new Rusty every scene. Yeah. That would have uh, been more fitting with the theme. Well, unfortunately, Ed Helms, uh, former Daily Show correspondent Ed Helms, gets gets stuck with the unwelcome job of being uh, the the fully grown-up Rusty, who now is a, pi- is a pilot for a terrible local airline. Think Southwest, but worse. Um, no, actually, yeah. Imagine Air Wisconsin, but not as good. Yeah, yeah. I've flown with Air Wisconsin. They're old planes, but they're lovely people. Oh, um, do the, please tell me Air Wisconsin gives complimentary cheese. No, it doesn't. But oh. the, the planes are so old that they actually do have um, uh, ashtrays. They just glued them shut. I'm not kidding. <laughs> no, no, I'm literally not. The Southwest Airlines still have many shuttles that are exactly the same. <laughs> but anyway, he works for Econo Air, and he's he's got two kids, one of whom wants to be a musician. Uh, the other one uh, is just a, just a type. bullying little dick who he's... keeps trying to... At one point, tries to kill his brother with, with a plastic bag in More a game once. he calls Go to Sleep. Yeah. And but... At this point, you're like... He's a terribly sadistic child. Yeah. And one of the few sources of pleasure, if you want to call it that, is that at some point, 
that kid does get taken down a peg. And it is, for a brief moment, somewhat satisfying that this horrible little child finally gets his comeuppance. However, you know, sitting down watching this movie, trying very, very hard to remember the original Vacation, which I saw a lot as a child. And I can't believe I was a child and watching it. But we saw it a lot. Yeah. My parents liked it. My siblings liked it. It was like everybody in the family knew Vacation. And it was there were still running gags that we've said over the years about that film. And it's very hard for me to sit here and criticize this one too strongly because it's crass and mean-spirited and cynical. Because honestly... The original. The original was exactly like that. I mean, they drag a poor dog to death. Grandma dies and gets strapped to the hood of the car. Your crazy uncle is an alcoholic who possibly molests his own children and has a plate in his head from Vietnam. I mean, there was a lot of horrible, terrible things in that movie. I think the difference was that that was a film where your, your central character is so... You know, he's played by an actor who's inherently charming... But the character is unlikable. Sure. And you kind of, you're waiting for the point where you have that total final meltdown. And it was dark, it was grim. But at the end of the day, you kind of come out the other end and you're like, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, okay, the family comes together over this. Everything that happens to the family in this one so much of it is even more ridiculously overblown oh well like they have nowhere to they have to top everything yeah the so there's the point where there is where they literally are swimming in shit yeah and you're like okay there's a I lot more the, bodily fluids in i this get movie. the joke there's you know a penis like uh, you know, oh, yeah chris helps with uh sad who i don't know who who convinced him to turn up uh christina applegate doing a a keg stand and you're like oh I know what you're trying to do yeah and it's like the thing is that this isn't just that it's bad it thinks it's good and it thinks it's clever and it's like you ain't that smart and your gags aren't that good Uh, and you know the original original vacation and even some of the later ones were like they know they're not very good but they're kind of like you know what It, it this is light entertainment with you know with boobs you know and 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 every time it makes a reference to the earlier films, it's like horribly mean spirited, and like you're just like, uh, you know, it just doesn't really seem to have any. The first one had some joy in it. It actually was like, you know what? At least the family's coming together. In this, it's like they're, they're going to reenact the trip that you know ruined Rusty's life in the first place they, when they go to Wally World. And you kind of look at that and go, is he supposed to have received some kind of? critical brain damage earlier in his life so he doesn't remember the fact that this was the worst experience that possibly could have been but even the original vacation ultimately ends up with the Griswolds triumph they get to Wally World yes it's closed but somehow they get on the ride that's the kind of that's a fine balance that a lot of films like this try to walk and they don't always make it which is yes it's mean spirited the jokes are cruel they're lowbrow they're crass but it always wants to give you this sort of sentimental uplift at the end that never quite pays off no. for me. It feels forced when they finally, as a family, just go, okay, we embrace our dysfunctionality, and, but at least we're dysfunctional together. And ultimately, this movie ends the way it probably, probably the only way it could, which is the Griswolds beating up another even worse family than Yeah, them. I mean, the only joke that I laughed, I laughed at, which is kind of weird because it's like, 
it's it's the point where you go, no, that's how you do awkward comedy. Norman Reedus turns up for five seconds and delivers a very subtle child rape joke that is actually the closest thing to genuinely funny in this because it's it's you go that's how you push the edge but don't just literally have Ed Helms smearing shit on his face right. because you guys did not have any clue how to finish this film. This film has the most the most number of pedophilia jokes I have ever seen in a movie. No. I mean, you describe one and you describe the most subtle of all the ones in this movie. But wow, it was like, okay, you're pushing the boundaries. I get it. But the original did that without completely crossing over the line for me. So if you're into some awkward, cringe-inducing comedy with a few rape jokes in there, I guarantee you, you have a better alternative somewhere. I don't know what it is. I don't know if I want to know what that film is. But I guarantee you there's something better than the Vacation Reboot. Yeah, I, and for some unknowable reason, this release has actually got some bonus material. Uh, Return to Wally World, which is basically about everybody going, well, we decided to bring the franchise back, and the rest of us going, uh, why? Oh, you watch uh, those. The, the Griswold that. Odyssey, uh, which is actually about, <laughs> about the van, the minivan they end up with, which, oh. by the way... I didn't know that you could actually do a, a prop minivan and make it into an extremely racist joke, but they do. Oh, okay. well, that's the other thing. This film is really racist as well. Oh, oh yeah. Horribly racist. It, it's, it's the one... It is possibly its only saving grace is that it knows how bad it's being. Yeah. It's so desperate. It's like, we know this is wrong, and you know it's wrong, and everybody feels so awkward, maybe it'll get a laugh, and... Boy, do they just load this movie with that stuff. But again, that feels very part and parcel with the whole yeah. 80s kind the, of gross-out comedy. Do you want to know something really funny about this about this uh, DVD? Uh. It's got a gag reel. Which oh. is funny because they could have put, they could have put some of them in the film. I was going to say. That would have been a huge improvement. And deleted scenes which, you know... Dear God, that means that somewhere out there there is an, there's an even longer edit of this movie. <laughs> No, but he... Somewhere, some fan will put that online, and one day you'll get to enjoy the three-hour vacation. <laughs> Peter Jackson's extended cut. <laughs> the extended cut, yes. With more special effects and, I don't know, more orcs or something making rape jokes. Well, mo moving on to something that knows it's terrible. Something that understands... You can't call yourself Lavantula. Oh, my. And, and not know that you are... Okay. <sighs> you know what? I, I was annoyed just reading this box cover because I had a hard time pronouncing the title. <laughs> I wrapped my head around it. Every time I tried, it ended up sounding like Laventura, which, you know, believe me, this is not an Antonioni film. But Lava Lavantula. Antonioni's Lavantula. Lavantula. I kept, but I, every time I tried to say it, it came out like Laventura. And I realized why I couldn't wrap my head around this stupid thing. There's an unnecessary L. That is the thing that annoys me. Sure, it's by the people who made Sharknado. I get it. They take a vicious animal and a natural disaster and Frankenstein them together. But at least Shark and Nato merge neatly. They had lava. 
Angela. And they're like, no, that doesn't quite flow. Love Angela. Let's put an unnecessary L so Monica will have a hard time pronouncing it. So it's, it's like they made a film to fuck with you. Lavalantula. Even though there's no L at the end of lava or at the beginning of tarantula. Fuck yeah. It. They made lavalantula. Beyond that, it also answered the question that's been in my mind for a long time, which is what the hell ever happened to Steve Gutenberg? Yeah. I did. I was like, where did that guy go? He wasn't bad. He was on such a hot streak in the 80s. And now he's in Lavalantula. I'm just going to make you say that until, until your head explodes. I'll get it right sooner or later. Steve Gutelenberg. Gutelenberg. Uh, I took it apart and stop putting random L's. L's in the middle of everything. Just to break up the flow. Uh, Steve Gutenberg, and one of the few good jokes in this movie, is he's playing a washed up Hollywood actor uh, who's kind of hit the How skids. did you do the research for that? Uh, yeah, you know. I guess they called everybody, and everybody who said no, and then finally they got to Gutenberg, and he said yes. This probably could have been played by any number of characters. Uh, but the thing that I found kind of charming about this movie is that it's set in Hollywood. It knows it's a movie. It is constantly referring to the fact that it's a movie, so much to the point where the heroes, the saviors of the day, are a ragtag film crew who single-handedly, well, not single-handedly, they work together, they save Los Angeles. Uh, because it's one of the few movies about Los Angeles or Hollywood that seems to genuinely love the place, instead of like talking about how terrible and sleazy and soul-crushing it is. All these characters seem to genuinely love Hollywood and the town around it, and do their damnedest to save it, utilizing the cheapest video effects that you will ever see. Yeah, this is... Ever. I mean, the basic idea is, you know... There's, there's an idea? There's, there's, tara- there's uh, tarantulas living in the lava of the San Andreas Fault, and they come out. Yeah. And that's pretty much the plot. Yeah, know, I mean, yeah. doesn't take any time. I mean, the, the, the good thing about this film, at the end of the day, is it's directed by Mike Mendez, who did Big Ass Spider. Mike Mendez has gone, you know what? Sci-Fi Channel makes shitty monster movies where like you, you know exactly the format it's so down pat it's like a bad romance novel like this is just what they are you know they'll give me the money to do them and that's fair enough and I get to make a movie and you know, he knows that, that much money he knows that they're bad oh yeah he, he is knows. clear on, on that issue um so for him to you know, he, he does them exactly the way they should be doing. Not taken too seriously, but with a degree of love. You know, he hasn't got the budget to do everything he wants to. The, the sad thing is, I, I talked to Mike Mendez in the past, and this is a guy who's got some great ideas for some really weird, offbeat little horror films that would actually be really fascinating. And instead he's doing, you know, basically fodder to keep the sci-fi channel machine going. Sure. You know, he did um, the Friday the 31st, segment in Tales of Halloween which is this wonderful idea where he basically gets a mixture of UFOs slashers um, the the Evil Dead franchise and puts them all together in a blender and he's you know he said I asked him about him he said look I mean this is actually something that I've been working on as a script for years and years and years and we just went well screw it we may get to make it eventually but this way I know at least I did something with it and I'd like to see Mike Mendez with his kind of wacky, off-the-wall sense of humor really be allowed to go kind of, you know, down the path that someone like Adam Green did with Hatchet. Mm-hmm. 
and do something really fun that really indulges him. And if he's, you know, I'd rather have Mike Mendes making this kind of film than somebody who isn't going to do it as well. Or isn't, right. yeah, Someone he's, who's just a pure he's putting he's putting his talent in a low gear to make this film. Yeah, uh, I can see that. You know, because there's some clever ideas in this movie, but it it runs out of. It runs out of money before it runs out of ideas. Yeah. Unfortunately, that happens very quickly, and it becomes kind of painful to watch because you see the seeds of a very clever sort of B-movie that is a knowing wink to the genre. But, you know, at some point you're just like, this stuff looks so cheap. Yeah. It's so frustrating to look at this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying this is like, you know, when... Martin Scorsese got his early early career doing driving exploitation uh, Asian uh, exploitation for Larry Cohen, but you know it's it is fun. Yeah, this is it's it's harmless fun. This movie's not rated, and I was surprised. I saw the cover and I thought, I don't think we're worth worth the cost of that. Yeah, uh, and I thought, well, all right. I mean, a sci-fi channel. I don't know how hard they're going to get with this, and. I don't believe oh. there's any profanity in this movie. Yeah. There's hardly any gore. There's no gore. I mean, there's a few... And what little gore... I mean, seeing people being eaten alive by, you know, fire-breathing spiders. It, it is so artificial-looking that yeah. there's no way it could inspire anything but laughter. I mean, it's so safe and harmless. And in a way, that's maybe why it's charming. Uh, it's as charming as the vacation movie was trying to be mean-spirited. Here, there's nothing... You see people get eaten alive, and it doesn't feel like a mean, oh, let's laugh at these poor suckers as they die. It's just like, oh, well, this is the part in the script where they where the giant bug attacks you and you dissolve into flames. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, it's, it is kind of fun that way. And, and oh, and uh, for fans of the Police Academy franchise... Uh, Michael Winslow comes back. So, making absolutely pointless noises. That that tells you right there. Michael Winslow is playing a props master uh, on a film crew that's working with the Steve Gutenberg character. And at some point, for no reason, he will just start making his trademark whistles and beeps and noises. Uh, and, of course, when you see that, you know nobody in this film is trying to take it seriously. And Steve Gutenberg is sitting next to him with a smile on his face in Going, what should be a tense hey, moment trying so hard not to laugh. There's a lot of moments in this movie where people say a line and the response doesn't quite match up. And I kind of wonder, it's like, did they only give them one take? Or was that just the best take? I really think they were just, this movie feels like it was made in about two weeks. Yeah. You know, and probably that was probably was. about three days of pre-production. That's including, that's including post. Yeah, and post. And I designing mean, the post. I'm talking beginning to the end. I mean... From the moment it started as an idea on a whiteboard at Sci-Fi Channel, you know, where they just have columns of monsters and columns of natural disasters, and then pair them up in the I most actually, I've actually way. always suspected that the uh, uh, the office, the, the commissioning offices at the Sci-Fi Channel, are actually kind of like the uh, the control room in Cabin in the Woods. It's like <laughs> uh, evil curse. And- yeah. Oh, pig breeders. Good. Oh, There's only, your next film. Only with a much, much smaller budget. <laughs> yeah, they're drinking cores. Yeah. You know, like, there's probably like cores. name our next movie contest amongst, you know, the staff and whoever wins gets like a cool parking spot for a month. Or I something. have a suspicion that actually their, their film commissioning department is actually just interns. Yeah, they get there on the first is. day and it's like, oh, direct, you're a studio director now. It's like, holy shit. You know, at least, at least, Lavalanchella. Lavalanchella. There we go. Lavalanchella. Lavalanchella. Was, was charming. It was charmingly I, I, bad. I've got to say, 
a film that thinks it's it's it is you know to uh, coin a phrase Arnold from Green Acres level of charming, but actually I found really profoundly annoying uh, is uh, Paul Coelho's best story the <sighs> biopic slash hand job of the <laughs> extremely irksome profoundly shallow. Uh, Brazilian author whose book The Alchemist is like one of the most translated books in the history of the world which may if true may well prove that uh, you know literacy is overrated yeah. um, and that you know maybe Fahrenheit 541 was actually the way the world should go if that was what you're burning like I mean this guy is like he, his books are they're self-help yeah. books they're, written in a fictional form is my, I've never read them uh, this is just what I've been I, told. I flick through and I'm just like what is this bullshit? There's it's like very much the power of a, what laws of attraction. Isn't that basically it? That's the line they keep repeating in the movie and on the book jacket and on yeah. the DVD jacket. It, it, if you dream it, if you wish it, the universe conspires to make it true. Which is which is you know just the worst horseshit. Yeah, uh, but it's like it's really like he's he's taken a self help book, mm-hmm. uh, this self help book idea, and kind of. Dressed it up in in low grade magic realism, yeah, with a little pinch of a, yeah, definitely uh, and, with that, and it's ended up with something that really just seems like a far more pretentious Da Vinci Code. Um, and this is the book about this is the the um, the story the book about how he came to write that book, and you know, basically, he seems to be a a pretty annoying teenager yeah. who goes off to be an annoying writer. Um, He's and then a child of be- privilege is the other thing. Yeah, he never he really gets really feels. upset because dad won't buy him a typewriter. Uh, dad's building uh, a mansion, you know. So he goes on a hunger strike. And and, I just want to slap him. And then at some point, dad's like, oh, I'm going to kick you out of the house. So he just moves in with his grandparents. And then at some point, he decides to start a magazine. And meanwhile, he's just writing and drinking and writing plays and having sex with women stare, far out of his league. Stare, it's, he stares... That's, that's the thing. Like, his his method of seduction is he looks sideways once at them and they're automatically like... They're automatically like, excuse me, can I put my hand down your pants? Yeah, and then read like, maybe a, snap, a snippet of poetry to them. And then at some point, once he's got a hot girlfriend, he's like, I have an idea for a magazine. Can I borrow some money? So for the first 20, 30 years of this guy's life, he seems to have been doing nothing but sponging off of others. Uh, uh, but, you know. but the way that the, the, the film portrays him is like, no matter what he decides to do, he's great at it. Yes. He's even the world's greatest children's clown. Right. Based like, on half a scene that we see dick. him do. Like, yeah, it's horrible. because And this is one of the themes that's nestled into the screenplay, is that because he wants it so badly... And he's so open to all that, it works for him. And of course, if you put that in a book and you sell it to millions of gullible people and convince them that if they only believe as you do, they too will be rich and successful and happy, then hey, that is the, it's this sort of circular, you know, approach to spirituality. It's like, you want happiness and success? Write a book about how to be happy and successful and have people buy it. You know, really, that should be the last chapter of any of these self-help books. They go, all right, take everything I wrote, write a book about it, and then try to publish it and see if someone will be foolish enough to buy it. Really, uh, now we're dogging on on the, the sort of basic philosophical underpinnings of Paul Coelho's work. This is a movie about his life. I sure, to a certain degree, it's sanctioned by him no, and done with his participation. 
because it's not at all critical. And he's not him. dead yet either. And so he's not soon. dead yet because it starts with him in the current day as an old man. And one, let's talk about with the a terrible haircut. Was not a, with a terrible haircut, a convincing wig, but it's a terrible haircut. He's like, if that's what your hair really looks like now, it is. Wow, you shouldn't do that. Um, I can't even describe it. Google an it, image, it, it, you'll it, see it. It looks like old Peter Gabriel with a weird rat's tail thing going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fair enough. That, that's, that's actually pretty good, just a leaner <laughs> version. Uh, let me focus on a few things that I did find positive about this. I know you hated it, and I really didn't like it. But in all fairness, this film looks really good. It's lovingly shot. Uh, the central performer plays Paul Coelho over two or three stages of his life. Uh, and the makeup is more or less convincing. It has its moments where it looks pretty rubbery. Uh, it's very ambitious in its structure in that it doesn't want to tell you a linear story of here's how he's a kid and here's how he grows up and blah, blah, blah. And then he becomes a famous author. It's told over two or three different segments that intercut back and forth within one another, not always at times that make any sense narratively to me. The problem I had with it is that in spite of the good performances, again, the filmmaker is trying so hard to pound this idea into your head that Paul Coelho is great, so that when we do finally see him have his life-affirming realization, I've kind of lost where he is in his development because I've been hopscotching all along that narrative line. It's like, wait a minute, was this after you were writing about UFOs or before you started a rock band? Or was this after oh, your first Oh, that was the other life? thing. I, his, you know, um, bits of his biography are suspiciously close to the biographies of other writers. Well, uh, sure. And I was, but, like, uh, you know, particularly that bit, I was like, Ah, so he's supposed to have written this magazine by himself. Hmm, there's a certain British fancy author who famously would take vast amounts of speed and knock these things out of a, over a weekend. Ha, huh, that's, that's a bit of a... But basically his Moorcock story, and I'm like, uh, that bit of your biography is so alarmingly close to Michael Moorcock that either you were trying to be Michael Moorcock when you were writing that shit... Or the, this yeah. this doesn't pass much. But there's a Jim Morrison moment. Where oh my god! Yes, where he's, he's like, like, he was hey, also the great great poetry. I write music. Let's yeah, he was get, also the greatest together. Brazilian rock musician. Yeah, ever. like none of this shit. He's man. never failed at anything. Yeah, and so and he's one of these guys who has, seems to have dabbled. Basically, he's no different than anybody else in the '60s or '70s who dabbled with. Eastern mysticism and spirituality and, you know, dipping into black magic and the Crowley stuff and UFOs and, I don't know, Ralphine and macrobiotics probably he's, as well. He did everything and then he kind of comes back He's one to the charitable Catholic foundation Church. away from being L. Ron Hubbard, let's be honest. Yeah, he goes back to the Catholic Church and here's where I really start to lose the thread in this movie is after all the hopscotching, about a quarter of the way in the movie... His wife in the 80s says, you know, you, oh, because he was also one of the best record executives yes, in all of Brazil. Yes, apparently. And he's like, you you hate this. You're a writer. You should be writing. Not, you know, being in an office with a suit and a tie working for CBS Records. Here's a gift, which is a couple of tickets to Amsterdam. Okay, maybe they wanted to go smoke some hash and get some inspiration. I don't know. But goes to Amsterdam, he does. They're sitting in a coffee shop. When he is approached by some mysterious character, who I think we might have seen earlier in the film, and maybe supposed to be God, it's very hard yeah, to tell. And he's like, 
He's like, who are you? It's like, oh, you know, you sent for me. It's like the master or the disciple chooses the master. And then he's introduced to some obscure sect of the Roman Catholic Church called RAM. I forget what the acronym stands for. He's presented with a sword and he's told to go on a pilgrimage, which basically seems to involve just walking a lot and saying, don't walk too fast. Don't walk too slow. Pay attention to the signs around you because, you know, the first step to... Uh, for miracles, in order to, in order for miracles to exist, we have to believe that they exist. So it's a very power of positive thinking, self help, feel good kind of thing. Because of course, only people who have even a slightest amount of privilege can ever delude themselves into that kind of thinking. Because I guarantee you, a child starving in a third world country has dreamed and imagined and wanted food really, really badly. Yeah, look, and they, the they universe just, they, has they not conspired to feed them. Yeah, they, they just, you know, like a, a sandwich. Yeah, it's like, whereas, here's, here's how his kind of, uh, at least the example that the filmmakers make. I don't know if this is directly out of the bio or if it's just something that the filmmakers invented for the purpose of narration, but at some point, he and, again, his overly hot wife uh, are sitting around a table and he's concentrating on an ashtray. He's like, I can break this ashtray with the power of my mind. And she's like, that's stupid, as any normal, reasonable person would say. So she gets up, grabs the ashtray, walks out the room. He grabs another ashtray, focuses on it, tries to break it with his mind. Off screen, we hear the wife yell and drop the, the ashtray. And in his mind, that's that kind of tenuous linkage between coincidental events that are seen as somehow more significant than they really are. It's like, you see, I wanted to break that by thinking about it. It didn't break in front of me, but I did cause it to break just in another way. And again, that's God sending you a sign. You just have to be open to them. It, it is nonsense. It is well-made nonsense. It's lovingly shot. There's good performances in this, but... Like any kind of film that deals with a belief system, how much you enjoy it really depends on how much you've already bought into that particular dogma. Yeah, speaking of things that that take us, have taken, taken a surprisingly large amount of effort, <laughs> which I was shocked when I discovered this. Toy Story, the, the Toy Story that Time Forgot, ah. the latest 22-minute Toy Story short, basically, you know, oh, you know, we do one of our holiday films and now we're going to put it on DVD just to just to get it out to the to the masses just ahead of the whole around Christmas conveniently yes. you know there's been a succession of these um, this latest one you know it's continuing after Toy Story 3 which my uh, least favorite I was wondering of, if it was canonical yeah oh no it is my, my least favorite of the uh, three of the uh, Toy Stories uh you know, it, we've moved on. The, the toys are now with a small girl. She is sent to play with her friend who doesn't want to play with toys anymore, but he wants to, even though he's been given all the best new toys, the battle swords. The battle swords. We're kind of thick thundercats, just, thundercats you know. as lizards. As lizards. And he's more interested in playing with with his uh, video games instead. And, you know, the, toy, the toys that are taken over there, uh, which... Uh, it has a lot of the beats that the earlier yeah. films had, what, where what, you had characters, toys who don't know that they're characters, yeah. and then a kind of evil toy who wants to maintain the status quo. Uh, there's nothing terribly original in this. I mean, but it's, it's, basically the, it's basically Toy Story 3, uh, where apart from putting uh, Buzz in a, in a side plot, mm -hmm. they also put Woody in the side plot as well. They're basically secondary characters in this. Yeah, um, and true. it's really fun concentrating on um, 
Trixie, played by Kristen Schaal. Because right. she uh, was cheaper to hire per yeah. day. Well, that's the weird thing. They actually did get everybody back for this. Oh, yeah, so they did. Tom Hanks is back. Woody, uh, but Tom uh, Hanks probably came Tim, in and did it in an hour and a half or yeah. something. Wallace Shawn is, is back. Don Rickles. You know, every, Joan, Coo- Joan Cusack as Jessie for probably... She probably did it by Skype. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Timothy Dalton turns up as well. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if they don't just make these while they're filming the features. Like, you know, this it's took like a side three plot. years. What? Three years. See, well, I'm talking about the, the recording. Oh, yeah, it's probably like Maybe so. they just had the script and say, hey, while you're here, in your downtime, since we're already paying you, read this. We're going to stick this in a can somewhere. And when we get to it, we'll go ahead and make the little short that accompanies it. Yeah. You this know. is weird because, like, it, I think in earlier years, these would this wouldn't have been released separately. Uh, but we now get to the point where they've done enough of these that, A, they're releasing them separately with more extras... I think the I think the extras actually probably run longer than the actual uh, than the actual short. I didn't watch which, any which of those. originally was supposed to uh, be a six minute short, and they went um, uh, it, it went twenty two. It, it, it does it's feel like an minutes. extended short. It's, it's a half hour. Um, you know, and it has a commercial break in it. So am I correct in that they showed this on TV? Yeah. Like oh, it, it, it's really clearly. I think it was. I think it may have actually been Fox. Oh, wow. I could be wrong, but I, I get the I get the funny feeling it was actually Fox. Um, there's nothing yeah, bad about this movie. I mean, you got a 22, you got a 22 minute uh, feature, uh, but and you got an 11 minute extra talking about the design of the uh, 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 the, the new dinosaur esque mm-hmm. figures. Which I was looking at them going, God damn, I would have loved those when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. And you know, yet again, it really catches how toys work. They're not just little people who tend to be who have any plastic. There's a couple of moments where. Um, the evil cleric who is convinced that all the, these uh, dinosaurs that they're actually real warriors so that he can rule everything. Um, he fits into this action set mm-hmm. and the way it's done, the mechanics of it are yeah. A, how it would be designed, but this B, so beautifully done that you kind of go, you get that sense of recognition. I mean, honestly, all in all, I actually preferred this way more than I enjoyed Toy Story 3, because I don't like Toy Story 3. I have real issues with the narrative on that. Yeah, this uh, is also short. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they, like... It's over. Yeah, I'm, actually, yeah adding, I'm just adding the stuff up. Uh, in between the commentary, the deleted scenes, uh, the animated openings of the Battlesaurs uh, animated series, because it's supposed to be based on animated oh, series. they actually did that? Yeah. Oh, wow. I mean, it's rather... And you look at it and go... I, I do wonder if they're testing the waters on an actual Battlesaurs animated I, series. The, the Battlesaurs felt to me like, uh, you know, at some point somebody had a meeting and they pitched Thundercats. And they said, that sounds really good. Can't, do we have the license to that? No. Okay. Well, let's just come up with something that's kind of like that, but so different that we can't be sued. And... That's kind of the joy with the Toy Story series, that you get to see, like, classic childhood toys. But you can also tell when they've brought in, like, a substitute. Like, sure, here's Mr. Potato Head, uh, and, you know, there's... You have the rights, too. But here is this imitation Hello Kitty. We're not going to ever call her Hello Kitty. She's just a kitty, and she she's a little ornament. And angel, she's got angel Kitty. Angel Kitty. She's pink, and she's got little angel wings. But... It's Hello Kitty. Battle, battle, battle zones. Battle oh! zones. yeah, you know. Yeah. So I, you could easily imagine that. So it, it is an off-brand, and, and this does feel more like a commercial for the Toy Stories franchise. I'm not the market for this film. I didn't even know it existed until you handed me the box. But 
if you got kids or if you're just a, a fan of animation in general or and if you're copy of this on your DVR from when you it know, showed last year there are worse things up. you could watch yeah. I mean or this you is could, a good babysitter or you, you could your just wait until they put the next Blu-ray box set out because it's going to be incl- that and Th- everything else this felt more like there. a TV series I would be okay if this were like a TV series you know if you had to purchase this just for 20 minutes of material barely 20 minutes of material uh, really the only thing this is going to do is entertain children for hours on end as they watch it over and over and over. So if you're planning your own family vacation, plan how many times you can squeeze 22 minutes in your trip. That is how many times your kids are going to watch this movie in the back seat. So, Talking of, of short stories, ah, yeah, see what I did I see there. What you see did what there. I did there. Uh, Mexico Barbaro, a- uh-huh. a.k.a. Barbarous Mexico, which is uh, it's being publicized as the uh, an anthology uh, featuring uh, six of the uh, sorry eight of the the hottest directors in Mexican horror. Yeah, which is kind of true, but that's just because there isn't actually a particularly huge Mexican horror scene. There's only really one name that uh, anybody's I think most people are going to recognize, which is uh, Jorge Michel uh, Jorge Michael Grau, who did uh, the original of We Are What We Are, which mm-hmm. if you've not seen, it's great and you really huh? should which also see the remake oh uh, which one was he because we don't have it up on the screen today so I can't see which yeah, we're, segment we, we're, we're having some technical having some technical issues here sure. which uh, is probably all Chris's fault uh, it's alright I think it probably is Chris's he's fault he's not in the room so we can blame him yeah I'm blaming him uh, he did uh, the, uh, the Island of Dolls one that was actually one of the more effective ones yeah that wasn't I mean, this bad is, this is you know uh, it's eight shorts by eight directors Totally very different. And this isn't something like... Uh, There's no overarching VH- theme. This isn't VHS or the upcoming Southland, yeah. which is one of my favorite anthologies of the past few years. Um, or, you know, it's the, the linking theme is they're Mexican directors and they gave them, you know, about 10 minutes each. Really, the linking theme, I think, that I've been able to discern is that... And actually, I looked it up. There's a uh, uh, Mexico Barbaro... It was actually the name of a book released in the 20s or the teens uh, talking about basically, you know, slave labor. And and, and how how slave labor uh, led to both the birth of Mexico and then the birth of democracy in Mexico. Well, it was a very popular book. And if you start off the very first... I don't know which, I guess, segment yeah. in this Well, film. the first one's almost a vignette. Rather it's more like a vignette. It ends right where I thought it was beginning. Yeah. You know, it's like, but I think in a way it kind of sums up for me what this film is trying to say, if anything at all, which is, hey, Mexico had barbaric practices centuries ago, and it's still a horrible, terrible place where awful things happen to you. And to me, I was like, really? That's your hook? But I'm like, okay. And that seems to bear out. There are segments in this series where they seem to try to insert some social commentary, or but it always feels like window dressing. You know, to me, it's like if the overarching theme is that horrible stuff happened in Mexico back in the day and it's still happening today, you could have investigated that. It feels very much like that first segment, which is like, here's this idea... You know, where we compare, you know, current uh, uh, drug lord, uh, 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 I don't know, sacrifice is the right word, but the way they torture and display the, the dismembered heads of their victims and compare that to uh, ancient Aztec rituals, 
it seems like a very shallow comparison, and no sooner has the concept been introduced, it's stopped and moved on to the next segment. And the one good thing about this series is they're all short. Yeah. So as soon as you get a dud, and there are some duds in this, there's a, there's a then couple you move on, on to the next one. There's, um, particularly there's one that actually has a really nice idea, but has some really terrible CG. That, oh, yes, that, yes. Uh, that is, it's so bad, it's distracting. The, the CG's awful, but in terms of a revenge tale, it was the most satisfying, I thought. But the, in terms of its execution, it was just too ambitious for their yeah. budget. Oh, but the, I mean, there's a couple of really nice ones that... Um, uh, the second segment was actually one of the ones that was most effective to, for me, which, which is... Two caballeros kind of r- arrive. What's the name of that? Something Berrios. Uh, uh, Haral de Berrios. What it? Haral de Berrios. Okay. I actually looked that place up because I was curious. I like this segment enough. Again, narratively, it's very thin, but it's drenched with atmosphere yeah. and it's really effectively done. It has a great use of location. I thought, oh, this is where all the budget went when I first saw this. But actually, that is a real place. Yeah. Uh, it's an old, decrepit hacienda that's now the location of a, uh, I believe, of a distillery or uh, some place where they make tequila. And it's still there. Tourists or whoever wants to go are perfectly free to go and walk around this amazingly decorated, ornate hacienda. But the catch is <laughs> that, you know, you enter at your own risk. Yeah. The place is crumbling. The structure is falling apart. You could fall through the floor. But these filmmakers <laughs> bravely went into it and got really the segment that looks like it spent. they spent the most money. Yeah. And they probably didn't, but they used a location oh, and they, they, and they, they did utilized with, it. With two characters uh, in old cowboy gear, yeah. a woman in a it's dress, a and a bit of rope. Yeah, and it looks a million bucks. I mean, right. it, you know, in the same way that you know the spaghetti westerns sure. shot in the places they did because it looked so good, and you, know, you could do it with no yeah. budget. And, I, and yeah, yeah I, that really worked. Some the location them, you know, is horrible, but when you see it on the screen, you go, "Oh, that was worth it." There's a there's a couple which are uh, you know, I, I like extreme horror, but that means I'm also very choosy on my extreme horror. Yeah. And if it's just like, oh, I just feel you're throwing splatter effects at me, I'm like, I, I'm I get bored. I know first. exactly there which was, ones you're talking. Yeah, about. there were a couple which went for splatter effects. One of worked a little bit better which had this idea of this small child who keeps looking out the window and going the boogeyman the boogeyman the, and apparently yeah. it's not the boogeyman it's no. it's just a homeless guy and he's lovely and it turns out no really he is the boogeyman yeah. and you should be afraid but, of but the thing is he's not a boogeyman he's not supernatural he's not supernatural but he is still but he is a source of threat and she's the only one who, who recognizes that this is a guy who's yeah. kidnapping children and basically harvesting their organs yes I spoiled it yeah. but I want you to point out much. something about this because one it, it not only goes really far in what you see done to a child but it opens up with a shot of this plaza in Mexico where back in 1968 there were these huge student uprisings and you know there was the military the the government basically fired upon its citizens uh, I believe this was prior to the the uh, the Olympics in Mexico huge thing it's a square there's a plaque there commemorating this horrible event so it starts off on that I think ah okay Here's a guy who's going to try to make some kind of social commentary, because why would you show me that? Why is that important? Then you see this homeless guy, okay? Then we cut to this fairly middle-class Mexican family who live in a high-rise. They seem to be doing pretty well off. I mean, not rich, but middle-class. Definitely better than the guy who's covered in sores and lives in the filth and in the gutter. And yet, as we find out, 
The mother is totally not threatened by this guy. In fact, she has some kind of arrangement with him where I guess she throws him a few pesos to go pick up the trash or something. And so I thought, oh, is this something about, like, you know, how the middle class are, like, you know, complicit with the upper classes and, like, you know, exploiting the lower classes? I mean, is that where he's going with it? You know, is that why you showed me a plaque commemorating a moment when, you know, the Mexican government killed its own citizens? No, has nothing to do with any no, of that. No narrative. It, no, there, nothing. There, there's nothing about that. And to me, that was cheap. I was like, don't show me that unless... That's like setting a horror film in Tiananmen Square, and it has nothing to do with yeah. democracy or fascism or communism or anything. It's just, oh, it's just a location that was available to us. To me, that kind of annoyed me in that it... And especially, I won't jump to the last film yet, but there is also, I think, morally, there's some huge complications with some of these stories. I think these filmmakers, I don't know how much time they had to write this stuff. I don't know how long it's been cooking in their heads. Maybe they just threw something together quickly. But there's moments where it seems like it's straining for some kind of purpose, and it fails. And it's and they just feel morally conflicted and confused and incoherent to me. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're, they're, yeah. they're fun, but, you know, And like they, the rape ones, I didn't enjoy at all. There's at least two back-to-back yeah. that are about rape. And really uncomfortable and just grotesque. Maybe there's a good idea in there somewhere, but in the execute and the worst one was the second one, which was the Mayan demons, which I oh, think they're trying to terrible. play that for laughs. It's terrible. it's kind of like a sub, it's like a subpar version of like, it's like some guy who probably watched a bunch of Evil Dead on a scratchy old. I actually thought it was somebody who watched some gua- some guar movies. Uh, yeah, that's because of what it looks like. I didn't like. get it. Didn't understand and, and like, like what it was that make, makes them fun. There's kind of vomiting on some poor woman's face and uh, La Cosa Más Preciosa. I think that was the name of that one. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just mean spirit. And that preceded one that was already about rape, which is so incoherent. Yeah. That I'm like, what was the point of this? Uh, I won't get into it all. But, you know, suffice it to say, a lot of these on a script level bothered me. There's definitely some talent behind the camera, but it's either hot, hampered by limitations or just just a script that is not coherent or, or has any kind of point besides, yeah. let's just show you something gross. That, which is, and that's the, the problem with, a lot, with, with the weaker ones. But some of them are kind of fun. I mean, the final one is clearly a remake of the... Uh, 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 the titty twister sequence. Yeah, it's the titty twister, but, but it's it also well. morally incoherent because it starts off with these women being raped and brutalized, and then being told by the madam, "Going, I'm as tough as nails. I'm a bitch. That's what I had to do to survive. If you don't like it, deal with it. You know, if you give me a problem, I will see to it that you are treated like that again." Yeah, it's like, oh damn, she. I mean, we see one of her. I guess one of these ladies in a being uh, raped, basically, as punishment for not falling in line. So, go out there and shake your ass for the guys. Now, the guys then, of course, act like a bunch of idiotic guys in any kind of bad movie and start pawing the girls. So, they take their revenge on all of these guys. On, I guess it's Dia de los Muertos. So, they destroy all of the patrons in the nightclub for the temerity of, like, touching them in a sexualized way. Meanwhile, the madam is sitting there smiling all along. I'm like, you're the person who had these women brutalized and raped to keep them in line. And now you're yeah, telling you them it's okay your, to disembowel guys who disrespect ground. you. Yeah. It's like, 
no, the hell with you. You are just doing this because you don't want to look like you're into this stuff. Yeah. Like, I'm above this. No, you're not. You've produced a piece of exploitation, and you don't have the courage to actually own up to it. You've saddled it with some unnecessary backstory to, like, suggest how this But it didn't need, pro- because the Which second half need. is good fun. It was perfectly fun without it. It's only when... You present me a character who I'm supposed to, like, admire at the end, like the Madam smiling as her girls go all, you know, psycho Charlie's angels on these guys. And it's like, but that was the woman who had you all raped and tortured and put you in this job. Yeah. Why don't you all kill her? Which would make more sense. You know, so anyway, to me, that left me a bad taste in the mouth. This is like any anthology. It's a mixed bag. I found the mix mostly disappointing. There's one or two sequences that are really, really good and are worth watching. So, oh, I liked know. it. I liked it more than you, but it's it's very that you know what's what's fun is for me is that the weak ones have fallen out of my head, and the strong ones I actually still remember. Yeah, yeah. There's some good images. The weak ones will definitely tend to uh, fall out of your head. There's that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Well, moving on. Yeah, uh, we were talking about you know somewhere where location makes the film. Um, Tiger House Tiger is a House. sealed bottle um, siege movie. It's Die Hard in the suburbs. It's well, it's the yeah, pretty much the uh, it's a uh, South African uh, British co-production uh, starring uh, uh, Cara Scodelliaro, um, who she was in Skins, she's in the Maze Runner films. Uh, she's very. Apparently- very good cast in uh, as the female lead in the next Pirates of the Caribbean. Film. Is that right? Because I really liked her, and I, I I really hated the end of this movie, and I thought that it didn't do uh, any service to the actress in this role. So I'm glad to see she's getting something better. Because yeah. this well, is a I, good movie up to a point, and then it really goes downhill. Yeah, the the, the finale. They kind of let's just say they paint themselves into a corner, and it's going to be interesting to see people's response to what they do to try and give themselves something like a resolution they added way too un- there was too many quote unquote character moments early on I think they try to just make them seem like they were more than stock characters and to also build in a little anticipation uh, this isn't a spoiler in the very beginning we see I mean literally this happens within the first minute of the film we see a young couple uh, they're videotaping themselves conveniently and no kids the, today with their videos and, they and, they hit it, you know, and we find out that this Kara what was the character's name uh, uh, Kelly 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 who is a very engaging character very well performed she is a gymnast she doesn't smoke she doesn't drink she's really serious about her uh, future as a gymnast meanwhile she's hanging out with her loudish boyfriend who smokes and drinks and does drugs and is sort of playing around and aiming his crossbow at her, as one does, uh, and then shoots her in the leg, because he's an idiot, and immediately at that moment, pretty much kills her future as a gymnast. Later on, we find out that she is from a very low-class background. Her mother has needs like a social worker because she has some kind of mental issues. On top of that all, uh, you know, the mother of the boyfriend hates this daughter because she thinks uh, hates the girl because she's beneath her son and to make things worse Kelly has found out that she is now pregnant because for some reason she has been dating for several months this guy after he shot her in the leg teenagers are idiots yeah and she keeps the crossbow bolt in her purse well 
as a sentimental thing. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that? I meant as a plot device uh, because it's going to be needed later. Yeah. And this is what also infuriated me, Richard, because she kept it. And she pulls it out. And believe me, if you establish the crossbow and you establish the crossbow bolt, you know it's going to come up again. We see this crossbow bolt, which is completely usable, perfectly fine. What that tells me is this little twerp did not call the paramedics. He didn't call anybody. Why do that? His mother would find out. He'd have to file a police report. When you get shot in the leg with an arrow, they cut it off. Yes. Since it wasn't cut, and I'm sure the filmmakers didn't do this intentionally, they probably never thought about it. But that tells me it's like, oh, he was too scared to call anybody, so he just ripped it out of her leg, slapped a bandage on it, patted her on the ass, and told her to go home. And then this film ends with this young woman who has bravely fought against the... I guess we should talk about the... Well, yes, I mean, probably an idea. I, I, I got so ahead of myself. You got, you got a, I was got so ahead. angry about the end. About the bolt. Well, the bolt was just one thing. It was the first thing of many. It was the one thing I could forgive because it was an oversight by the filmmakers. The ending, I think, was intentional. And it's the kind of ending that the filmmakers well, want you to believe is, is a thing happy is, The thing is that, that, that the ending is actually an ending that, that has happened in a lot of films. In a yes. lot, of, in a lot of, of siege betrayal movies where somebody where there's a large amount of money knocking around. Like, it's, it's the ending that I've seen so many times. So I think I've got less objection to it because it's like, that's a trope of the genre. Okay. You know, and it's uh, therefore, like, yeah, it's a lazy trope, but, you know, you kind but of... when you kind of another element... You kind of write yourself into this into this corner. Uh, what, it, what this film does well yes. is that it doing a sealed bottle drama and not making it just feel like you're just running around in the same room um, mm -hmm. can be quite hard. Yeah. The basic idea is that she's sleeping over the night, trying not to get caught by uh, her not... No way is she going to be a potential mother-in-law. Um, and she uh, she's there when a gang breaks in ties the family up and demands that the father take them to the bank that he works at. Yes. Um, well, at this point, she's got a decision. It's like, yes. does she try and rescue them? Does she just make sure she doesn't get discovered? Well, a lot of this is taken out of her hands when um, the leader of the gang, played, played by Dugray Scott, who... Surprised he's in the production this small. Like he, this guy has yeah. much better things to do with his time. He's become a poor man, Sean Bean. I think. Oh, harsh but fair. Um, he he ends up stabbed. Yes. Um, the plan goes wrong. The plan point. goes horribly wrong. So she has no choice but to get involved. And she's trying to work out, you know, what? How can I survive? How can I get a be out of here? Trying to work out the motivations of the various uh, gang members. But one one of the fascinating things that he actually is really is really smart about it is the first time you really see any of these characters of the gang is when Dugray Scott has this brainsy operation has been taken out of commission. He's got glass in his gizzard yes. and he's taken his mask off. And you're like, yes. he knows these guys dying. aren't in control. And in a lot of ways, this kind of reminded me of... There was you know, a few Italian uh, thrillers, not really Gialli, but uh, there was a Cold Eyes of Fear... Mm. Um, which was shot in London in 72, 73, I want to say. Um, it had that same kind of feel of, like, nobody is in control yeah. uh, of the situation. They're all, you know, it's not even like she's just kind of got an upper hand on them yeah. at certain points. They're all slave to the scenario. Yes, there's some um, interesting reversals, too. And I think it does that surprisingly well. Oh, yeah, for the first... Uh, apart from the heavy-handed... 
uh, foreshadowing in the... No, kitty, don't do that. Excuse me. <laughs> Beware the cats. Uh, my, this cat is eating my hair. They'll uh, do that. Stop it. Uh, Added sound effects, folks. Yes. Biff is side from the ham-handed beginning. And I was totally on for this ride. I was enjoying it. I could overlook a lot of what I thought were cliches or inconsistencies or improbabilities. I was happy with it because I could suspend my disbelief. It was really a good product. I think the young actress does a fantastic job yeah. in making She's a really likable good. character. Dugway Scott is really good Dugway as a guy who is clear, who's, who about halfway through realizes he's dying. And what him dying means is it makes everything more difficult for everybody around yeah. him. And there's he is effectively the mastermind, and now he's kind of been taken out of the picture. Now, one thing that's very smart about this film, because it is, as you said, it is all set inside this house or the outside of the house. It never leaves the grounds. And so how do you do a heist film uh, without actually leaving that location? And I thought that was very well done because he's trying to coordinate with his accomplices while they commit this other crime uh, elsewhere. And it's all done through radio over their uh, CBs or whatever they have, their walkie-talkies. I thought that was very effective. This film does so many things smart with its budget, with its location, and then it gives an ending that completely disrespects uh, the female lead that they established so well by basically just kicking her to the curb in the most insulting, callous manner possible. And they I, have the temerity to think that that is a happy just ending. Yeah. I, I do have to say, like, yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that, the intro and the outro are problematic. And they could have solved but, that. But, like, the middle 70 minutes are pretty damn good. But, yes, that's what I'm saying. I, and also... Um, uh, that's, but, of course, that's how people who get cheated on in relationships talk about, well, the first few years were great, but then that one night she cheated on me with yeah. her best friend... It all went to hell. It the, kind of sours everything that came. The before. other real selling point, though, is uh, Ed Screen, um, Dario Naharis from uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, he was also the lead in the uh, rebooted uh, Transporter Refueled, uh, who plays Callum, who is the is the youngest member of the gang, That's and who he's he is. yeah. And oh, okay. the characters, it's a really nice little character beat because you always have kind of like the young, irresponsible one. And you quickly realize he's the most dangerous one because he was the one, like, his father had died. Yeah. He'd, he'd said, well, while I thought Dugray Scott was his father. I yeah, that but he's merely his mentor. Yeah. And you suddenly realize, like, this kid is is a fuck-up. And, you know, yeah, all, he's well, no, all he's doing now is trying not to fuck up his life more by making... and he, But his way of making sure he doesn't fuck up more is not getting caught. Right. And his predilection for violence without particular intelligence... He's one of the more interesting things about I him. actually found him very frustrating because I thought in every movie like this, there's always the hothead. There's that one guy. Yeah, but I thought I should be there where someone has to go, I vouched for you. You're not going to mess but this I thought up. Yeah, I mean, again, we're playing and with And he always messes with, it up. We're playing with tropes, but as hotheads, yo, like, you've got an actor who can actually do the hothead really well. So I'm he okay does with it that. well. I even forgave him when he started monologuing for no good reason. Yeah. You know. There's a lot of good elements to this movie. And if I'm speaking harshly about it, it's really because the last five minutes angered me so much. Yeah, they really bugged you, they didn't really they? really bugged me. I, I'm sorry. Maybe I have a soft spot. But in my heart for, you know, I, I love the fact that we had a really strong female lead in this. She was so engaging. She was so charismatic. She set, did everything to save these miscreants, you know, who basically say, here's some cash, you whore. Take you and your pregnant body out of our lives and out of our house. Spoiler. Here's more money than you will ever be able to spend, deposit, 
or move out of the country without alerting the authorities, you'll end up broke with all your money gone, and you'll probably bleed out from a miscarriage in some horrible third world country. But hey, you're the hero, and you deserve a good send-off. That infuriated me. Because well, I mean, some man is... wrote this without thinking about what a pregnant woman no, no, might actually need at that moment. She... she... Because just you always on the wanted NHS. to go to South America. No, she'd just stay in the UK. She'd stay in the UK and have the baby. Maybe. That's, I, that's, uh, I got like, the impression she'd, that she's she'd, like, I'm going to go to South America. She'd fight, no, she'd, fight, she'd, she'd hire a lockup gar- garage, put the money in that, and then spend it very gently. Maybe. I I, I've, so. I've, thought, I, I've thought through how I, you spend that kind of money. It just seems so callous to me. Yeah, the filmmakers it's, it's, were just you know, it, 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 but that's the thing. It's the, you, all you and they did it without thinking. It's the intro and the outro to the sealed bottle. All you, you know, that kind of thing is the key out, and, yes. like, and then you don't think what's what's gone beyond. Which is the which is always the problem and and the nature of sealed drama. If you break it up by minutes, ninety minutes of this movie is really good. Yeah, the first five few minutes are perfunctory. The last five minutes are insulting, but. If you are able to look over that, you're going to really enjoy those 90 minutes in the middle. It's a great sandwich between two shitty pieces of bread. Now now we're going to move on to one of the most baffling films I've seen all year. Uh Uh-oh. Because somebody decided, hey, we've got the Terminator franchise. Oh. And we've kind of rebooted and we're kind of experimenting and we get to play around with certain things because... Um, you know, it's a time travel movie, and therefore you can say, "Well, you changed the path of the." Of, and therefore, we don't have to be exactly in keeping with our own, own continuity. Somebody decided for Terminator Genesis: one, let's reboot the franchise, but two, let's do it by doing a greatest hits of every single other Terminator movie, uh, even the ones that weren't as good. I- I'm actually and surprised the- they did, <laughs> and then. Yeah. Let's say this is our new new order. This is our new reality. The one really smart thing this this film does. The I was talking to Chris about this earlier. Uh, that it goes. You know, you don't really have a Terminator movie without Arnold Schwarzenegger. No. But he's old now. Yeah. And when we did young CG Arnold Schwarzenegger in uh, Terminator Salvation. It really work. It looked kind of weird. We could do that a bit better now, but there's still a bit of an uncanny valley thing going on. Oh, very. So let's find a good excuse why the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator now looks old, like the Governor. And it's, it's because they go, "Well, he's been he's been waiting for thirty years." Yeah. This is it, basically what happens: is they go, "Let's take all three time periods that the Terminator film's been set in." Bout between them in a very complicated way, mm-hmm. have a kind of YA version of Sarah Connor. Oh. Have Kyle Reese look like a, a swimsuit model uh, rather than a guy that grew up in a sewer, which yeah. for all his problems as an actor, Michael Bean looked like he, he'd he be, really you know, he'd, does. He, he'd lived in a dumpster. He looked like a guy that lived in a rat infested future. Um, CG Arnold didn't bother me nearly as bad as the guy they hired to to be the young Bill Paxton. Yeah, no. That really bugged me. Oh, yeah. But this is the thing. You you have it. Even trying to lay the plot out for this is, is so hard because I think the instant you start pulling at the strings of this, it unravels so fast because what it tries to do is basically go, okay, 
we're creating uh, we, you know, we, we know this is our cash cow for years and we know Arnold still wants to knock a couple of these out he's not going to last forever and at some point his hips are going to go out so let's let's do something that's that's kind of fun and references all the other stuff and there are moments where it's actually, they actually shot, shot by shot, shot. scenes yeah. recreated from much better versions just, I wish they would have done that and just used the original footage and then maybe do a little Forrest Gump thing and drop Arnold into those scenes. Uh, because to me, that to have, you know, stage it kind of disrespects the originals. But to again, to Zelig. Like, <laughs> that's right. There he is when he was right, right before he killed Hitler. Uh, we can see him in the background. I didn't find this movie as com- complicated as not, people say it is. It's not complicated. It's, not, it's just not coherent. Even then, I, I, I saw huge plot holes in it, but I also think there are things that were not explained because, make no mistake, this is being set up as a new trilogy, as a new set of films. Whether they'll do that or not, I don't know. It's, I guess it depends on how well Terminator Genesis did at the box office. I, I actually... I like the explanation for why Arnold is now old. It turned out to be very, very simple. It's like, we covered him in human skin. Skin ages. Like, okay, I I guess that works if he's been around for a long time. Why is Sarah Connor such a kick-ass person in the 80s instead of, you know, this scared waitress that we know from Linda Hamilton's performance? Because the Terminator showed up when she was nine and ended up raising her to be a warrior. So by the time Reese shows up to save this naive young woman, she's already a badass warrior. So... But it never answers, well, who sent the Terminator back? No, never saw her. Because I'm convinced that's going to be oh. something that shows up later. Uh, but it's what starts this. That It's the idea that you change one thing in the timeline, and everything after that changes. This is another movie that benefited from low expectations. Yeah. Because I heard nothing good about it. I actually enjoyed this. I mean, the it's, only it's fun. Things, it's just kind of like, you know, okay, well, you got to reshoot that scene. I mean, a yeah. lot of what's fun about it is... Uh, is Alan Taylor who directed Thor: The Dark World getting to go back and reshoot some stuff with potentially some you know new effects? Yeah. But it, and I did like the fact that it didn't just go look. We're just going to give you references to Terminator and Judgment Day. It did reference Rise of the Machines. I yeah. mean, there was some moments where I'm like, oh no, you remember that? It did directly reference Sal- uh, Salvation. And I barely remember that, those movies. Is that yet again? We're kind of getting rebooted uh, people playing the the characters, so you're kind of going like, "Well, hang on." So you know, Sarah Connor is now Amelia Clark. Jason, uh, right. they can uh, change everybody. John in this Connor cast is now. yet again rebooted. Uh, <laughs> I almost didn't go to this movie. Actually, I didn't go to see this at the movies because of a again, Jason Clark is his name. Yeah, uh, he shows up in the trailer. The only time I'd ever, I, I to be honest, I grew up watching the first two Terminator films. I loved them a lot when I was a kid. Uh, when the third and fourth one came out, I saw them once at the theater. Yeah. I retain very few memories of them. I found them very forgettable. And I just basically wrote this franchise off. When they said they were going to make Terminator Genesis, I was like, okay. I-, I had no interest in seeing it. And the only time I'd seen anything of it was when I was at a movie theater and I saw the trailer. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll give it a chance. Then Jason Clark shows up. He's introduced as John Connor. And mind you, this is like a minute and a half, two-minute trailer. And it's revealed that he is now the villain. 
And again, that's not a spoiler, kids. That's in the trailer. And at that moment, I checked out. Which is out. very frustrating. I was like, you just, that was probably the only interesting twist you could throw at me. And you Although just showed weirdly, it to me. they do actually hide um, the, uh, uh, completely the, uh, a fairly major. I realize why they did that now in retrospect, yeah. which was if you look at some of the promotional t- material, there is another character. No big surprise here. The other person who's got a big name in this, uh, who's who they you know but, not mentioned on any of the publicity material, yeah, not mentioned on the covers, nothing. Which I realize now, in retrospect, that's why they gave away the big reveal of John Connor being merged with Skynet. Because as it turns out, he's not the true villain of this. He's basically. Think of him as the Darth Vader to the truth to Skynet's Emperor. He's a guy who's going to kick your ass, and you have to deal with. But ultimately, he is not the guy but in charge. If I, you know, that's where I, if I had real problems with this, this this had Star Trek Into Darkness syndrome of going, yeah. hey, look, remember that thing you recognize? Well, if you don't remember it, re- like not really emotionally invested, but vaguely aware of mm-hmm. these films, we're going to rerun that again for you now, and it, it'll be okay. Yeah. Um, but- and if you do remember them then we're going to kind of remix it again yeah. so it's like something new and it's like Just don't think too much that. about it you know it. I, you know it's like it's it, it's their big it's mistake was being, having a, no, it's being ahead. original in the name of being unoriginal which yeah. is really you know you when you're when you're standing there and saying the benefit what this film is going to be is pointedly and repeatedly derivative in the and we got smart people trying to be derivative. That's a weird situation to put the I audience in the filmmakers. Was we're assuming that this whole generation has not seen all the films that came before, so we're going to remake them in digest form in the first thirty minutes. The first thirty of this movie, first thirty minutes of the movie is just the first four films, kind of done in a bite-sized chunk with a few twists on it, and then from. We're going to introduce John Connor as the villain, and you think, oh, that's the big reveal. And then the second half of the movie is figuring out what's really going on. Structurally, I thought that was actually kind of sound. It's just, it's a series that has been around so long, and they have to bend over backwards now to make these timelines work or to bring anything fresh out of it, that it's just really hard for me to get invested in it again. Maybe a new audience will, but... I also think that it's not a mistake. They have Matt Smith in this movie. Ah! He was really popular. Yeah. He's on the damn... No, I, he's not. He's on the poster. Is he? He was on the... I saw photos of him in, like, Entertainment Weekly posing yeah. with a gun. They must have, they must have a, failed at certain points in Matt keeping Smith there. is a character in this movie, and that's not, a, that's not taking anything away from it. Uh, it's not but, adding much either. No, it's not. He doesn't have a lot to do, but I thought this was the big... They're like, oh, the kids, they love Doctor Who now. Let's get a former Doctor Who... A perfect time to have Matt Smith come out and go, and then some timey-wimey stuff happens. Yeah, that there, there, is, perfect. there is a lot of timey-wimey stuff you in the narrative. Have, but instead yeah. they explain it. At least in Doctor Who, it's like, ah, some timey-wimey stuff, paradoxes, blah, 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 blah. Let's move on. Yeah. Now, it, it, it feels so serious about all of these plot revelations that I just kind of checked out. But it is fun. It's well staged. Uh, the director... Uh, uh, I really didn't like that Thor movie he did. Uh, was it Thor that he did? Yeah. He but he also did some really great episodes of Game of Thrones. He's a really solid director. The film looks great. The effects are better than they ever have been. And I actually enjoyed this more than the last two sequels. I didn't. 
I've got to say this if, uh, for me. But this I don't actually, remember those last. For, two for me, this this you know actually pushes uh, particularly three up in the canon quite remarkably, wow. which I, I think I, is, I think it's a very, you know three gets points for one of the best bleak endings. But, well, three's that's the only thing I remember from three is they took the hard ending. Yeah, I don't remember anything else that came before it. I just remember they're like, oh damn, they actually went there. Blowing up an entire in, entire graveyard. I can't remember. That. Anyway, uh, <laughs> weirdly, not actually a particularly overloaded disc, which I would have thought. You know, this is a film that would really cry out for a major making of. Uh, you got a half hour making of about um, how they turn New Orleans into 1980s Los Angeles. I actually, enjoyed by, that segment. Yeah, but that you know, you mainly do that by taking the whacking great big tax incentives that Louisiana well, gives you. Um, it's probably part of their contract. They have to put a special. Oh, they do. How great! Oh, Louisiana increasingly is. they do. Some of them are getting really quite hand jobby. Um, <laughs> uh, the uh, uh, upgrades, the uh, visual effects of Terminator, which is a quarter-hour CG section on like how to, how we made Young Arnold. Well, we mainly did it by looking at what you did in um, Terminator Salvation and going, let's not do that again. Um, and um, Family Dynamics, which is just a featurette on, uh, on everybody basically about them. How great everybody is. Well, that and great. trying to explain exactly how this how this narrative works. Now they've thrown out pretty much all the continuity. But uh, every yeah, but every one of those movies basically got into that situation. You know, really, I don't know why Skynet even keeps going back to the eighties or the night. It's like, why don't you just go back to the eighteen hundreds and just kill everybody? You know, I go back to, like, I don't know, the dawn of man, and Skynet can just go kill the first early humans and just sit there and wait for millennia. Because you know, then he wouldn't be created. I'm confused now! Oh, timey-wimey We figured header. out Cybernet. We figured out that Skynet is actually now this app that's going to go viral, you know, in two oh, yeah. days. That's a so very, very clumsily... Control. That's That's the thing. They yeah. actually do try and update uh, yeah. Skynet because they suddenly realize, like, oh... The technology that looked so futuristic right. in uh, 1985 now yeah. just looks hilariously anti. Skynet's you might no as, longer a defense. You might system. as well say that semaphore flags are trying to take <laughs> over the planet. Um, Skynet is the new literally killer app, and it's going which to is merge never ex- with everything. Yeah, it's somehow. It's basically Apple TV. Yeah, uh, but, but here's the stupid thing: is our heroes, as it turns out, the Terminator, who suddenly knows. I'm talking about Arnold's Terminator, the Guardian, as he's referred to in the script. He somehow knows enough about Skynet's tech to build a really, uh, a really scrapped together looking time machine. But it works. So they go, oh, we know when Skynet's going to go live. Well, we need to stop him before that happens. Okay, why don't we go two days before that happens? You could have gone a year. You could have gone a week. You could have killed everybody on the project before. No, let's wait two days because that's that's plenty of time to save the world. it's only there to introduce this sort of ticking clock into the narrative. Otherwise, it made no sense. It's like you could have gone back. Hey, three I, or four I'm, weeks. I'm still rather that, that Arnold was doing this than Jingle All the Way Three. Uh, you know, um, that'll be the next franchise he tries to reboot. Speaking of people in projects where you're going, what, uh, uh? <laughs> Nicholas Cage in still paying off that tax bill. Yes, aka pay the ghost, pay the IRS. A- a surprisingly, actually, you know, like, let's be honest, Nick Cage is taking some shit these days. Oh, yeah. Nick Cage, I, I still think nobody can be on the surface a worse actor from every technical point of view and yet be more enthralling. Um, 
I'm still not convinced he's a great actor. Oh, no, I'm not saying... There's something... People like, tell me he really is, and he knows what he's doing. There's a weird alchemy about, about his performances yeah. that he embraces the crazy. Yes. And, uh, you know, he... I think he walks onto the set, and he doesn't act. He plays. Yeah. I re- he really plays. He's like a kid going, yeah, this thing's real. And he's a guy who could pick up a stick and it's a lightsaber. And to hear, and he's not like being an actor playing. It's just like it's my lightsaber. And I think, exactly. and there's this weird element of playfulness to his, to his performances, where you kind of think, yeah, he's actually fallen into this world, and it, it's it's totally real to him. And you're not catching him performing; you're catching him being in this thing. And I think I, I that's why when he makes were being in it as much as he was. Yeah, that's why when because they you, look like they're acting in a conventional movie. Yeah, and that's why. Well, that's why it's very hard for anybody to get. I think wrangle him. And it's like when you, so when Vin Vendors gets hold of him, you know that people like that. You go, yeah, this is this is this is magical. When you put him in something like this, you kind of go, it's Nick Cage in a generic ghost movie. It's generic. And it's fair. Being him makes it may- more watchable. It doesn't necessarily make it better, no. but it's it's much more fun. It's a very simple idea. It's a very simple narrative. He plays this, you know, very successful writer, and he's, his his life's going wonderfully. And uh, uh, he's, a, he's a researcher he's into a Celtic into college into Celtic I mythology. Thought he was an English teacher. He was an it's, English it's professor. Very, it's very ambiguous, exactly. Because yeah, he just he, his best very, friend at the in the at the college happens to be this researcher. Yeah, it's it's just but kind he's of like teaching. Like he researches stuff. Yeah, he reads. He's them. smart. He's and a he, smart guy, and he, he reads. He reads Goethe to his col- to his students. So he could actually also be a psychology professor. Well, he's like he's a guy. He's a professor. Let's he's just an say academic. Professor. Yes, and uh, you know everything's going wonderfully, and he's he's married to um, you know one of the many people who died uh, on The Walking Dead. <laughs> he's married to uh, Sarah Wayne Kias, who who played um, oh. Rick's wife, dead now. Uh, all the characters should just be called dead now. Um, uh, and they got this adorable tyke of a kid. And they go out at Halloween in New York. And uh, the kid goes, Daddy, don't forget to pay the ghost. And he just thinks it's adorable. And Nick Cage is dressed as a cowboy. And I do think he just turned up on set. I, I, I really that, do believe that that's really, his wardrobe. It, it fits but, so well. That like, feels like I have this made for me. Yeah, it does not seem tailored. No, um, it looks like it's from his personal collection. Yeah, and he turns around, and his kid has disappeared. As these, and of course, as any parent would, he freaks, freaks out. out, runs back home. Of course, the wife kind of understandably blames him. Like, why didn't you watch him? And, and then. You know, a year later, it's one of those movies where you get that title says a year later. This is the other thing about that's good about about Nick Cage. Uh, you do you do look at him and go, "That's a man who hasn't slept in a year because he's worried about his son." <laughs> um, yeah, and basically, it's it's him finding out there may be something mystical and weird about his son's disappearance and no, and going to the police, annoying the hell out of the police by right. being the father that turns up and goes, why aren't you doing, doing more? It. And I think I found evidence. Yeah. The thing is, his crazy theory, you're going, oh, this could be true. This is a weird little movie because it's, it's totally very disjointed, it even is. in the handling of the supernatural. I really like, actually, the little subplot with the police officer who goes, this guy is a pain in the ass. But this is an interesting lead. And for a few moments, you see him, and, and in parallel, you see Nicolas Cage go and talk. Apparently, 
on the 31st of October, near Halloween, a bunch of kids in New York go missing. So Nick Cage, being one of these parents, goes and interviews some of these and provides a list of some of these names and missing kids to the uh, policeman who's been on the task. And so the detective goes, you know what, I'm going to go look. And so for a brief moment, it feels like a bit of law and order, where it's like, characters walking, it's like, excuse me, I know you're at work, but can I talk to you a moment? It's like, sure, let's bang, go with bang. that. Bang, bang. You know? And then meanwhile, it's like, hey, I know you're a junkie and you're grieving over your kid, but can you talk to me? It's like, yeah, let me give you a brief little monologue about the horrible shit I've seen. And that, it kind of becomes a procedural. And then meanwhile, in tandem, you have his friend at the college going, I found out what, you know, this symbol means. Or there's a symbol, and they go and they meet some woman who is holding a ritual. They're like, can you tell us what these mean? She's like, I don't really know much about it. I'm actually a high school teacher. I just get out here with, like, our re- little reenactors group, and we do our Celtic festivals. But fortunately, I'm a font of information and yes. provide you with everything you need to know. This, that you could have just gone to Wikipedia and find this out. This is, in many ways, this feels like one of those old point-and-click horror adventures. It has that very same feel of, like... You know, you find the right character and they give you just enough exposition right. to the get, get to the same thing. The we- there's, there's two really weird things about this. One is that there's a sequence at the end that you suddenly go, holy shit, did this come from another much better movie? Yeah, there is an is actually it- haunting moment. Oh, it's really, it's really like the... You know, and that's if Nick Cage the saw the payoff. script and said, I want to do that, I want to do that I scene. I can see why. Yeah. But then it ends up with Nick Cage on wires hanging over a bridge, you know, fighting with a witch. Yeah, and, a badly CG and, and witch. And really badly done. But that moment, which is just... I, don't, I won't even explain that. But I it's, so I, but it's done. beautifully it's so done. It's so cleverly done. And very scary. It's the only scary moment in the movie, apart from a couple jump scares. The, we- the, the other weird thing is the fact that this is directed by Uli Adel, who you probably everybody's going... Probably the last know thing I know name. the name from. Last Exit to Brooklyn. Yes. Body of that's Evidence... Funny. Not a bad director um, at all. Big in the early nineties. Bottom Meinhof complex. I like, really like that. And you, one. Uh, you know, and you're like that was a great movie. You did this, but he went to Hollywood. He probably got a. He's well, no, because he did Bottom Meinhof movie. complex in 2008. He'd already done the Little Vampire. I mean, he did the Little Vampire in 2000. This is a guy with the weirdest fucking career. Yeah. He has the Nick Cage of directors <laughs> so at this maybe point. That's why they were bored to work you know, together. You know, you know what I, I, I kind of liked about this film is the fact that Nick Cage has got to this weird point in his film in his career. Where he plays people and father figures who want to rescue their kids, want to do the best by their kids. And you keep seeing this in film after film of his. And sometimes they're revenge dramas, and sometimes, like, you know, this is the second. Yeah, there's multiple times where he's the guy who's going, you know, I really. I can't save myself, but I can save you. And. Because he realizes he's probably squandered his kids' fortunes. Yeah, he's really attracted to that. Oh, it's all right. Like, you know, because he's doing National Treasure 3 next year. So, like... They'll be fine. Their college fund is okay. But, you know, the weird thing about this movie... Well, not the weird thing, but the thing that... If there's anything that disappointed me about it... Because I actually enjoyed it. I, I was actually surprised that it was a very fun, satisfying, unpretentious little thriller. Uh... And I liked it when it kind of went into that procedural drama zone. But the problem for me was that the, and again, not a spoiler, very opening of the film takes, it's a flashback to Manhattan in, I guess, the 1800s, 1700s, and you see something horrible happen. 
And everything then that proceeds from that is based on... It's the ghost of the people involved in that incident. Burn the witch! And that, that totally... To me, Burn it was it. like... You know what this movie kind of reminded me of? What it wanted to be like was like Poltergeist. Except Burn. the problem is Poltergeist works because you don't figure out why the ghosts are there until the very, very, very end. When they go, oh, you, you only move the headphones. Yeah. You know, so there's no suspense or drama in it because... Well, all the characters are going, you don't really think this is a ghost, do you? I don't know. I mean, what else could it be? There's got to be an explanation. like, the rest of us are going, no, it's a ghost. We saw the chick get murdered in the beginning, and we saw the CGI vultures that no one else can see. Yeah, no, it's totally a ghost. So it really, I think, robs the movie of a lot of tension that it could have benefited from. Because it's kind of interesting when everybody's going, Nicolas Cage is crazy, and Nicolas Cage is kind of thinking, maybe I'm going crazy. But the rest of us are going, no, no, we saw exactly what you're seeing. And yeah, it's a ghost. Yeah. So not a bad movie. Nick, Nick Cage going crazy. That's not a long walk. No, nah, not anyway. a long walk at all. <laughs> it is time, ladies and gentlemen, for, you know, one of our favorite bits of the show. Yes, indeed. It's time for the giveaway. And the giveaway is good, I think. This the, good, the giveaway is actually really, really a fun little movie. Yeah. This is Uncanny. Now, I actually got to talk um, to the uh, the director of this. Um, do I remember his name now? Oh, um, Matthew Lutweiler. Um, and he said, you know, he, he made this, and then him and his editor went to see Ex Machina oh, and spent yeah. their entire time going, oh. That's exactly oh, what I thought when I saw the box oh, for this movie. Oh, God. Because their, their first assumption was a lot of people were going to look at it and go, well, this is an Ex Machina ripoff. In I fact, this, this was that. developed... They were filming at the same time, completely yeah. unaware that the film... Uh, the only reason that it kind of touches on the same questions of, uh, you know, the line between human and robot is just because they are such relevant questions at this point. Yeah. I, inst- I in- actually... I'll be honest, this is a much smaller film, uh, but in a lot of ways, I, I really dramatically preferred this to Ex Machina which yeah it's been on my list Ex Machina uh, one of the reasons I got very annoyed at it was within the first five minutes it completely misinterprets what the Turing test is whereas this it is absolutely pivotal that that you understand the Turing test and how it works and it applies it properly it's basically again a seal bottle drama I'm I'm really into seal bottle dramas at the moment with um, three characters uh, one of them is, uh, is a, uh, a designer, a, a, a robotics designer, who's basically been off the grid for years. The other is a, um, a, a woman who works for a magazine owned by the same company that has been funding his research. Mm-hmm. And the third is the completely convincing robot that he has, he has spent years Adam. building. Yes. Um, this has a really fascinating reversal on one thing about Ex Machina because it, in Ex Machina it's two men and a female yeah. robot I or a feminized a robot version of this. Or is is you know in a kind of uh, that battle of the sexes. Whereas here it's a male creator, male robot, and a female interloper. And the, and, the, and yeah. there is one sequence that you will that will go make you go, huh? This is about a robot which really wants to be human because. Let's just say there is some interesting mechanical tinkering that goes on, and you go, "Huh." If this is about it, and, and this isn't about a robot that is that doesn't want to be human. This is about a robot that really, desperately, completely wants to be a human, not just oh, yeah. a, a not just a robot, uh, an AI 
an intelligent thing. This is just beautifully balanced. I thought this was a really smart piece of, of low budget sci fi. Yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is this is I was a pleasantly you, surprised. Yeah. A, I, goes in, in directions you will without feeling like needless twists. Yeah. There are points where you will go. Oh shit! I missed that important you, detail. You didn't Damn, see that it was coming, me. but it doesn't feel like it's there. It, it doesn't feel like a cheat. Yeah, it's like the clues are there. Yeah, if you were looking, this is a, a smart little sci-fi movie. Yeah. I'm really glad that we're able to uh, give away a copy on DVD this week. So, uh, as always, follow us on Twitter at one of us. Net. Uh, at one of us net. Chris always correcting me, uh, and using the hashtag. Um, uncanny giveaway. Um, like we said, this kind of like has a it's like a, a low budget indie concept version of a lot of the themes that are dealt with in Ex Machina. So here's the question: suggest a big budget sci-fi movie of any era that you'd like to see remade as a low budget uh, indie gritty little film. Oh. Because, like, so often, like, they, they use the budget to cover all this up. But, you know, did, has anybody made a better sci-fi, an actual sci-fi movie in recent years than Primer? No. The answer is no. Before anybody wants to get into it. Silence. Silence, Cox. Silence. So, yeah. Um, like I said, follow us at one of us net. Uh, use the hashtag uncanny giveaway. And tell us what big budget science fiction movie you would like to see re- redone as a low budget indie. Uh, well... That, that's it. All, that's all for this week. We're done. Thank you so much again for being here, Marco. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank again. Uh, thanks to you for listening. Don't forget, you can become a subscriber. Buy any of the discs that we talked about this week from the links down below. Uh, you can find more of my work um, at the Austin Chronicle. Follow me on Twitter at Yorkshire TX. Uh, and uh, you know, to finish it in the way we always do. No release is too big, no release is too small. From Criterion to Catastrophe, we review them all. And a very happy Thanksgiving. Goodbye. Bye.